One is the one of ones. That's something I find fascinating because you're battling forces from two sides. On the negative side, one of ones have the problem that there's not thousands of them where there's a community revolving around that project because there's just one of them. So you're kind of buying it independently. And once you're owning it, no one else is incentivized to pump your price. On the flip side of it, there are things to be said that it's starting to become like the traditional art world where perhaps it's the artist themselves that is creating the community. So if the artist has 200 one of ones, then there's still an aspect of there's a community around those individual pieces based on the artists themselves. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. I'm Sabretooth. With me is Kizu. With us today, special guest, Jordi Alexander. Jordi is a game theorist, first principles thinker. He's the chief information officer of Cellini Capital and advisor to many NFT projects. All-around games expert, former poker pro, has a lot of opinions, all things to do with crypto. And today, I'm inviting him on the show to tell us his opinions on, on a variety of subjects related to NFTs. Jordi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Jordi, tell us, how did you get into crypto broadly, and but also specifically, you know, what was your kind of first um, introduction into NFTs? Yeah, I mean, broadly, I lived in uh, the Bay Area around 2016, and that was one of the few places in the world where everyday conversation, crypto would come up. So it was just sort of surrounded by crypto back then. And I would say I really, really got into it deeply in uh, 2020. NFTs were not on my radar until um, 2021, I guess, when the explosion was happening. And I've always had an interesting relationship with NFTs where I I get a lot of the aspects of it. And and then some of the emotional aspects, I'm I'm always amazed how some people get so tied up into like a specific picture of a penguin, for example, in it. There there are are whole identities wrapped into it. But I, I find the whole unlocking of what the possibilities that it opens just fascinating. So um, I would say like uh, a lot of the deep dive first happened just seeing the crypto punks and the board apes early on. And I'm in a group with, with certain crypto whales. And normally like we would just be talking about tokens and they just started every day only talking about NFTs. Like literally the whole chat would be about NFTs all of a sudden. So I asked for some references and I really got some good deep dives on penguins, uh, sorry, not on penguins, on, on apes, like the thesis behind that, like very early on when it was like one or two ETH. Didn't really buy a lot of them, unfortunately, so I didn't follow through, but I found it fascinating just thinking about the human psychology of it. You mentioned that you're kind of fascinated by the, by the psychology. Maybe you can expand a little bit on that. Yeah. I mean, there are financial incentives, obviously, and a lot of people are just, you know, flipping back and forth and just sort of trading it like a collection game like we used to do when we were kids, you know, flipping Pokemon cards or whatever it is and then trying to level up. But there's obviously a lot more psychology involved. And I don't know how many of you guys have um, noted what Eric Wall has, has been doing with creating Erica Wall on his Twitter, where it's like this female character and his thesis around like simp, simp DAOs and basically how 
you know, human motivation is, is driven by, you know, ultimately like procreation is, is, is one of the base instincts that that's why we were all existing today. And insofar as NFTs can start to create a sense of status, for example, that can play into these under these wirings that we have as, as human beings, I think it just sort of unleashes potential and power from, you know, somebody simping, which is basically like, you know, they're, they're wanting to like evolutionarily succeed <laughs> with, um, with a high status female, for example, and, and likewise, uh, the other way around, some of these dynamics really kind of play into the subconscious. So why does somebody want to flex a very rare, uh, NFT, for example, I, th I think a lot of it just comes down to like these base sort of instincts that we have. This is a very popular thesis in NFTs right now, which is that NFTs is about basically status signaling. And at the heart of it, if we accept that thesis, that NFTs is about status signaling, don't we just say that then essentially the value of an NFT is that it's valuable? I think that's semi-undeniable at this point. There are always going to be people who are looking at the market and saying, which one is the most expensive that's going to show people the most status? And I just want to buy that one. And I don't care if it's pixelated punk or if it's a, an ape. It, like it, there is a clear catalyst that just drives price forward, and that is price. If that's the case, though, wouldn't that be essentially a very rigid kind of situation where something is worth a lot because it's worth a lot. Therefore, it'll always be worth a lot. But what we see in the NFT space um, is that there's actually a lot of movement um, mm -hmm. relatively, right? So, so the most famous of which is, is the flipping of the punks by Bored Apes, right? So I, I, I would say that the majority of the NFT space kind of has never questioned or never questioned before the kind of the supremacy of CryptoPunks as the most valuable sort of PFP. And I think the majority of people, you know, never expected that to be challenged ever, if yeah. definitely not in the near term. <laughs> um, you know, but it's so funny. I, was, I remember like watching some of the predictions for 2022 podcasts and there was a Blockworks one with Santiago and he literally was saying like two days before the flip inning, he was saying, they will never flip. Like at the end of the year, there's going to be like quite a large price differential. You know, apes will never flip punks. And literally two days later, we just had this very aggressive flipping where, where, you know, it, it never turned back. So I understand it surprised some people. I was actually not on that boat. I, I've always been advocating that punks are not the Bitcoin of NFTs because they don't have quite the same provenance. It's not like they were the first NFT, like, Maybe they were the first of its kind, but not even that sort of questionable. Obviously, there's there's the curio cards and, and other things that came before. So look, you're right. It's not fixed. It's not like price goes up and, and that'll all go, always kind of be the only aspect. But I think it is one of the main, you know, winning begets winning type of things. I know that you come from, you were an avid gamer and you were a poker pro. And, and having both of these things are quite specific in the sense that I think it takes a certain mindset to literally to game the system, right? And then to come up on top. And I was wondering what parts of that do you think have been particularly useful for yourself in your current role, advising projects, assessing value? What are some of the things that, you know, you think, uh, it over really nicely and helped you to to make you know perceptive calls and judgments. I think two things. One is being able to really understand mechanics and motivations 
you know, what are you trying to get people to do and how do you design something like a contraption that allows that. So creating economies around NFT projects is, is really what I find very interesting. And a lot of that comes from a background of strategy games, you know, really trying to think through what the other player is going to do and what are you going to do and, and other ways to game the system. That's one of the things with crypto. It's always, people are always looking to take advantage of a system, whether it's like an airdrop and they want to create multiple accounts or whether you're kind of always fighting the civil resistance issue as well. And obviously we see a lot of games that require you to click through and do certain actions so that a robot is, is not necessarily able to uh, just create a thousand addresses. So that's one thing, kind of creating mechanics. And and the other one is, you know, in poker, we, we talk a lot about what's like the kind of game theory optimal, the Nash equilibrium. And with a lot of these things, I always look further down the road. I don't just look at one or two steps down. I say, okay, what does the future look like? in the end, like, is this a viable future that is able to be an equilibrium? So things like multi-chain versus Ethereum and the marketplaces and what is that going to look like? It's something very interesting where obviously Ethereum was the initial basis for um, NFT projects and the gas that people were paying for auctions and, and just to do anything. It kind of makes me sick, honestly, like just like for, for like a retail person, just wanting to participate in something and having to pay like hundreds of dollars of gas just for a transaction, which is irrecoverable. So even if, you know, the price stays or, or goes up, you're, you're still kind of facing these costs. So there are these structural problems though, where OpenSea was just integrated initially with, with Ethereum. And then they started adding, you know, some more options and eventually we're having a ton of marketplaces. So, you know, that's something I think about a lot is like the fragmentation of liquidity and, and what does that end game look like? You mentioned you find it a little bit puzzling that, you know, how people tie their identity to a penguin or a punk or an ape or whatever it is. So there's there's that kind of, I guess, very individual um, variance in terms of how people respond to, you know, an, a non-fungible object, basically. And I was wondering if you think that, you know, the, the kind of demographic of consumers is at the moment homogenous enough that they would respond in a predictable and consistent way to the way in which you design these mechanics? Not really, not really. I think there's different types of NFTs that mechanics matter and, and there's somewhere it's just a, it's just a PFP. I think for PFPs, it's less relevant. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about more kind of like building economies around projects and specifically around communities. I, I've always been saying that NFTs are perfect for communities as opposed to like an, a fungible token like Dogecoin or Olympus DAO where people have different amounts of the token. Some people have 10 Dogecoin, some people have 10 billion Dogecoin and somehow they're supposed to like coexist together in this community and, and share memes with each other. I think NFTs have a huge advantage over that because A, you get to have a different looking NFT. So you have some individual identity even within the group. So that, that's huge. And B, it's not like, yeah, sure. Some people might buy five of the NFTs instead of just one, but actually owning one is a threshold that is meaningful. So you're kind of entering the club by, by having an NFT where, you know, if you just have one Dogecoin or even like one ApeCoin, like the fungible token is, is not really well suited for creating that sense of community. So I think 
I'm kind of discussing more like the community aspect and like some of these projects really trying to design, you know, all this financial incentives around staking. You can stake your NFT and you get this other thing or, you know, you you get kind of rewarded for doing certain behavior and that can potentially change your NFT. You can level up your NFT. There's a gaming aspect to it as well and a social aspect. And, and those are the... So I, I wouldn't say it's it's contradictory. Like if somebody really falls in love with with uh, with their NFT, they, they, they're still going to have the same financial incentives. Do you think the communities are essentially an extension of basically price? Meaning like it's very difficult to form a lasting community if if the price of or the floor price of, of a particular NFT collection doesn't sort of appreciate. And then, you know, that kind of informs that, okay, what is actually driving the community is, is the community driving the price or is the price driving the community? I, mean, I, I would disagree a little bit. I think it's not necessarily the community or the price. It's the people that are bestowing value on the NFT collection. So in the case of if it's like an influencer that's created an NFT collection for their community, then they are driving the value, for example, right? So you can see that if they're going on the Discord or they're offering the, the holders of their NFT access to their music that nobody else has or access to tickets or you know creating value for them, then that's really able to drive the buzz in the community rather than you know the other two things. Now, of course price is going to be a reflection of how well they're doing. If value is not getting created to the community, then, then the price is going to go down and that can be a reflection of it. So uh, compared to fungible tokens, where, what, what, what you're saying is, is definitely something I would agree with where, you know, Shiba Inu or Dogecoin, all the excitement, all the entire excitement just gets created because of the price. Like if the price stops going up, you, you stop seeing the memes everywhere. So that's, that's one extension. But um, on the more like utility NFT extension, whoever is responsible for driving uh, the action, like for Board Ape Yacht Club, for example, you, you have like a very good execution team that's been getting, you know, apes and a lot of celebrity spots and creating this cultural side of it. So I would say like culture is, is what's going to drive it and not so much like the price. I think the price is just going to be a reflection of the culture in the long run. The concept of sort of value creation, how do you separate that from from the price. Um, I mean, we've, we've been through a, a few NFT cycles and there has been multiple experimentations of all, all kinds of sort of crazy stuff. Yes. And at the end of the day, if you look at what most people think of as kind of best practice, quote unquote, um, in the NFT space, mm -hmm. it's basically been kind of a post hoc rationalization where <laughs> yes, like, okay, this is value because it, it increased the price. Therefore, yeah, it this, this thing mm -hmm. is now valuable. I, I would absolutely agree. Like, this is such a nascent space that every, there's just a can be an explosion of experimentation. And ultimately, we're going to follow and copy the ones that work more than the ones that don't work. So I'm sure there's a lot of projects thinking, you know, how do we copy apes? We have to get these into celebrity hands. And that seems to be culturally significant if, if you can get like some big names to, to flex on. And of course, we've seen a lot of projects try to do that. They haven't had as, as much success getting as, as many people involved. And to be honest, when I look at the equilibrium, I think that, you know, the wow factor of the first time that we had like Jimmy Fallon or Eminem, uh, whatever kind of show a PFP, 
that was, that was intense. I think over as the years go by, it won't be quite as dramatic to see any, any given celebrity show of PFP. It's, it's not going to be like ground shaking, like, like it was, um, you know, over the last uh, year, but that's definitely one thing that people are going to be copying. There's things that we thought were going to work like, uh, you know, AI NFTs that are talking to you or you kind of training like that stuff, I guess it's still in progress. So TBD in terms of, you know, the type of NFTs that are more AI driven. I, I mean, the algorithmic side, I think was a little bit too bullish at the beginning, like with the Fidenza type of stuff that a, a lot of the whales that I was talking to really were fully convinced that those would always just be holy grails. And um, <laughs> I, I guess like some of these theses have, it's kind of what you said, like the price has kind of been a reflection of what has gone right and what has not gone fully right. I wanted to kind of bring back, I guess, your poker background, especially since kind of your US base, because this is always something that intrigued me because kind of the first big crossover into NFTs was basically from the poker community and specifically into basically the CryptoPunks project. Correct. Um, so there's a ton of poker pros, whether, whether they're public or not, that, <laughs> that basically bought a fuck ton of CryptoPunks Correct. Um, and spent a fuck ton of money on them. I don't think the thesis that they bought in with has kind of played out in the sense that, I mean, CryptoPunks basically got, got overtaken. Also, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting is that in terms of like non-financial metrics, whatever you want to call it, CryptoPunks is by far the most successful NFT project, right? In terms mm-hmm. of the amount of you could basically say the entire PFP market is a derivative of CryptoPunks, right? In terms of the the, the, the trades and, and everything. Mm-hmm. But financially, they just haven't been as successful as some others. Not even just bought it. You could put a ton of other projects against sort of CryptoPunks price. So I kind of feel like it's a clear difference between, you know, what has gone on in terms of price versus, you know, whatever anyone else thinks in terms of like quote unquote fundamentals. There's a concept of like risk adjusted, which I think you're missing. So if, if we think about in five years, 10 years time, CryptoPunk, like if you have to imagine which collections are going to still be valuable, like if you had to stake your entire net worth, go in a coma for 10 years and, and wake up, I, w- I mean, yeah, right now the price might be higher for, for something else or it might be trending up for something else, but there is a risk adjusted sense where it makes maybe a lot of sense to just say, okay, if I have to do this and I have to pick, I'll, I'll just pick CryptoPunks because there is a little bit more resiliency in terms of the narrative there. So the price might not be ex- exploding, but the, you know, you, you're, you're risking less. While if you're picking Azuki's, let's say, something that's been extremely successful, that is a, a incredible like fad right now. And, and I mean, that, that seems to be like doing extremely well, but you couldn't really pick it out of the thousands of projects. And if you were just picking the wrong one um, that looked very similar, it wouldn't do well. So I don't think they've made a bad investment. You know, you, you just kind of have to have to consider like the downside was a lot lower. I think this actually transitions into a, to a point that I want to get your, your opinion on, which is the legal side. Because actually this is a hot button topic. And, and I chose CryptoPunks because it's a very rare project in the PFP space in that essentially the creators of CryptoPunks have basically abandoned it <laughs> and not doing anything for it. And if you look at the art, side of nfts that has always been the dominant kind of narrative where the the art 
you know, stand on its own, the NFT stand on its own. Whereas, you know, if you talk about things like Azuki's, Bored Apes, any other sort of um, NFT project, they seem more like, you know, people betting on the team, right? More like a sort of like a startup project rather Mm -hmm. than, you know, an art project. And this has always kind of been a tension where a lot of artists say, okay, I created the art. That's the art. Like I'm not like, you're you're not like investing in a company. I'm an artist. Whereas I guess projects like Bored Apes, Azuki's, tons of others explicitly, I guess, position themselves having a huge roadmap that they're executing. And I wanted to, I guess, you know, get your opinion on that. And, and also, I guess the legal side, because, you know, especially in the U S <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of makes a lot of, a lot of people have said board apes is, you know, the ape coin is, is basically a security. Um, even the board ape NFTs are kind of securities because you're kind of betting on the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think pure art and I would even categorize crypto punks in the sense that the value of that collection is kind of like a museum. It's a museum value. Like it'll just be like this relic. It'll, It'll keep some of that historical significance while some of the other ones that have all these roadmaps and metaverses and everything else going on are are trying to create cultural and technological value. Those are the ones that start to get into like legal issues because of the securities laws. So I have had quite a lot of discussions with lawyers, um, former SEC people about the security side. Initially, early on, about a year ago, I would say that the belief that I was being fed was that NFTs were not securities. And furthermore, uh, the SEC would just completely not look at them as securities and they have much lower hanging fruit. They would never get to that. So if you wanted to do something financial within an NFT and create airdrops for it or create staking rewards or, or whatever else, you were sort of in the clear because you know, NFTs are just so far away from their purview that they wouldn't look at it. Sadly, that thesis uh, of the time seems to not be true. I I think that, unfortunately, this antiquated securities law stuff that they have in the United States is going to be a problem for NFTs as well. That's that's becoming very clear. They're not giving them this kind of pass that uh, it looked like they would get. So in terms of like, are they securities? Look, by their, by the definition of, uh, you know, the, the standards that they have. Yeah, they kind of are securities. Unfortunately, definitely ApeCoin and those type of things are securities. A lot of cryptos are securities. And you can make the, make the case that insofar as an NFT is getting equal rights to some airdrop or, or, or some other um, financial drop, it starts to become fungible and like the floor, for example, is fungible. Um, there, there are definitely like arguments to be made that they are securities and this creates a lot of legal battles that I think are going to have to be fought. What are some of the more, you know, the cooler stuff that, that you're, you're keen to explore? Yeah. I mean, the, the gaming side obviously is, is a whole different element where NFTs just fit in very nicely in terms of the ownership of items. And I think, we don't necessarily need to create a whole new structure there. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's just exactly what it used to be where you would have some rare item in a game. And now we're just making that an NFT so that it's much more easy for people to uh, move it around and sell it and own it and feel like a more ingrained with, with the game in that aspect. So apart from the, the gaming side, the, the social side and the social tokens 
are something that I find the most fascinating. And we've seen music be the fore, forefront of that. We've obviously had musicians and DJs um, start to dive into that space. And that's kind of the first part, I think. It's very logical. It starts with music because it's so easy to NFT a piece of music or create like revenue streams from from Spotify in theory, again, like legally, like this is extremely complicated. And I think the legal issues that these guys are having, um, where, you know, you want to tie your success, um, on Spotify to the NFT directly is, or or the social token either way, um, has a lot of legal issues and they're probably having to deal with that constantly. But in terms of the social structure around communities and the NFT being part of the community, what I think is very good to do is reward people in that NFT community or or in that DAO to do certain behaviors. Like if they're being active in the community, you want to give them something. That's like a very basic thing. So on a very simple level, the more frequently that someone is participating in a positive way into that community by creating content for it or uh, creating memes or yeah, just posting in general, you, you can you can kind of like th- set the threshold where you want, but you can imagine a world where different NFT holders are getting different rewards based on their contribution. So that's the type of things that can align incentives for everybody. So I think I think that's um, that's going to unlock a lot of things. Jody, I, I want to go back to your point about about games because uh, I mean this is kind of a huge NFT sector, and in terms of investment, you know, it's much more like a like a startup. Um, I think you said that it's more straightforward to integrate sort of NFTs in, into games. I want to play a bit of devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say like one of the first kind of play to earn games that became popular on the internet is, is kind of poker, right? Poker was kind of the original sort of play to earn. Correct. And you can sort of close one eye and put a framework there where sort of when online poker came into the world, um, it basically kind of cannibalized the player base from a bunch of other games that were just less you know, attractive now that Arnold Pike goes there, right? I'm thinking like things like StarCraft, sort of Gin Rummy, um, Batgammon, like Magic Magic the Gathering. Yeah, like basically all those play bases came over to online poker. And you see that to some extent right now in the the NFT gaming space. But it seems like the majority of the games that's happening right now are essentially people who are sort of big gamers in the Web2 space. And then they sort of take a particular model and they sort of, you know, sprinkle NFTs on it. And... I mean, I'm of the personal opinion that this won't really work because, you know, when you add financial incentives to a particular game design or game mechanic that didn't have it before, it's basically turns into completely something else. And I would liken it to kind of the reverse of what happened in poker in that, you know, <laughs> when sort of poker came to sort of Facebook or those kind of things, and then they, they kind of took away the financial incentives from poker Essentially, it was a pretty like unattractive, boring game that basically hardly anyone wanted to play when yeah. you take the financial incentives away. And I'm wondering whether this happens in reverse in NFTs when you kind of add financial incentives. Yeah, I see your point. It's, it's very interesting. I guess like we can we can break it down into like dopamine and and what are we trying to do with our time? If the appeal of poker was you know gambling and the the brain lighting up all these different things where you might win and there's like the reward center exploding and then you you go to zynga on facebook and that's not there so there's no appeal it's all about like you know uh, how is the brain reacting and I, 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 
correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is with gaming, people are more trying to have fun and relax as opposed to be in this like high stress gambling. I might win, I might lose like this is stressful state. And, and it kind of takes it from like a pastime that's chill to something that maybe they're not looking for, which is like a, a stressful endeavor. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, like, like I think there's been research on this sort of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. And then if some motivation crosses over, like it changes the game like completely from a you know, psychological perspective. Um, yeah. and, and, and even games like, for example, Axie Infinity, right? Which is kind of currently the most popular game. Like a lot of people you know, think the game is about battling. My opinion is that the game is not about battling. The game is about like trying to build your guild. It's like, it's yeah. kind of like people are trying to sort of do their own sort of start RP kind of thing. That's actually the game, not the battling basically. Sounds a little bit like a multi-level marketing uh, pyramid <laughs> type of thing, the way you describe it. And I wouldn't disagree with you necessarily. In, in essence, the, the kind of money-making side of those games is very clear. Yes, there is, there is like playful artwork to it and there's, some, there's a little bit of gameplay, but I would agree that it, it's more about creating your, your little pyramid and, and expanding it and in your, in your guild. And that's not sustainable. I think that's clear. That's kind of why I was saying, if you just take a normal ordinary game like a Diablo or one of these games where you have rare items and all you do is just sprinkle, you know, this does work, I think. Like all, all you do is, you take a normal game that people just play for fun anyway and, and compete in and you sprinkle NFTs in the sense of you just make the items NFTs so that if somebody has a rare item, they've uncovered it. It's more like playing the lottery where it just creates this like extra upside, but it still keeps the fun of it. And you just have ownership over that item in a, in a more digitally free way where you can move it around chains and stuff as opposed to being within the game. So I think that sprinkling is is clearly working in, in terms of the full financialization and coming at it from that side. I, I would agree with you that I'm not sure what what the path is, but it's it's not probably sustainable as as we look at it now. A few weeks ago, you um, on Twitter you you were talking about Luxray um, and specifically how it was kind of attempting to to dethrone sort of open sea via some kind of novel game mechanics, and and <laughs> I would say just. You know, from my personal experience, um, the amount of NFT marketplaces coming out in the next few months, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about this sort of attempting to dethrone OpenSea uh, situation that probably will play out in the next um, few years? I think it's very viable. OpenSea being a very regulated US-based company, my thread was kind of pointing out there is this web two aspect to it, which they want to do things. They want to create incentives. They want to create tokenization. Web three is all about tokenization and aligning incentives through those tokens. And OpenSea can't necessarily give a token or an airdrop to people. And that really creates a disadvantage versus an anonymous group that can create a marketplace where you're getting incentivized for using the marketplace and for other people using it and creates this flywheel effect. So I think it's very ripe for overtaking. It needs very, very good execution because ultimately you need liquidity and it's a network effect. So you have to maintain momentum. And if you start losing a lot of momentum, it's, it's, it's kind of buried. 
And the other problem is there's other people, like you said, are coming up with very similar ideas or creating a lot of marketplaces because if the upside is so high and the cost of building it is low, there is not much moat around it. So in terms of the future, just looking from a equilibrium sense, I think the technology will play a part in terms of creating ways to list your NFT on multiple marketplaces at the same time so that there's not necessarily, uh, you know, if I put it on LooksRare, uh, I'm not finding buyers from OpenSea or, um, you know, whatever 20 other platforms come up. There's going to be ways where you can still source all the buyers because as a seller, all you're trying to do is, is find the buyer that's willing to pay the highest price as soon as possible so that you can, you can sell it. So I think the technology will start to get upgraded and, and this will play a transformative effect in many ways. I think, first of all, we'll start having wallets that are a lot better than the current sort of MetaMask standard where you have to switch between chains and you have to keep flipping around. And, you know, if you want to go from Ethereum to Polygon, you have to move there. I think we will have wallets, especially for NFTs, designs for NFTs, where you'll, you'll have your wallet, it'll be an address. And for all the other EVM chains and everything else that exist, you will just have a clear view on your wallet of the NFTs across chains. So it'll be a cross-chain wallet where you can easily see what you have and it doesn't create such a huge barrier around, you know, needing to be Ethereum on OpenSea. It'll kind of make it a more level playing field to have a Polygon NFT that has a different marketplace and those will still be as visible. I think the visibility aspect is going to change. I mean, there's tons of other people, but they haven't like moved the needle at all. But but even LooksRare haven't moved the needle really in terms of getting into the OpenSea market share. I think like LooksRare has executed okay. I don't think they've done like an incredible execution. That's That's been a little bit of the problem. The idea and the concept is obviously they're better than, well, you know, so like you said, these other ones haven't even been on the map. And, and even like the, the airdrop that happened before the SOS airdrop, you know, some of these things just, haven't had an impact. While looks rare, it's still fighting. There's some activity. The market cap is is decent, and and the FTV is still like over a billion dollars. And the incentives that you're talking about that they're paying, it's not like they are paying the incentives directly. It's more that the people who are anyways trading on it are paying each other. And it's it's hard to uh, explain a little bit, but it's you know if on the one hand you have a marketplace that is literally just just giving out cash, giving out coupons for for people to to use it and using their treasury for that. And the in the looks rare case, it's more that they're giving a percentage of fees, and the fees are being incentivized by getting the reward of the fee. So it's it's a little bit of a of a circular thing where people are paying fees to to themselves to get like slightly higher percentage of rewards. So I don't think it's cost them anything and it hasn't done badly. If you look at the price, it's a little bit tricky to compare apples to apples. Even if the price is going down, if you're having a dividend being paid out at the same time, and you know, you're having even a dividend paid in Ethereum, not just in LooksRare, but uh, in actual ETH, then looking at a price going down, you're maybe assuming it's doing badly, but at the same time, people are getting a lot of dividends. So the investment itself might still be doing very well. A couple other things that I find interesting. One is the one of ones. That's something I find fascinating because you're battling forces from two sides. On the negative side, one of ones have the problem that 
there's not thousands of them where there's a community revolving around that project because there's just one of them. So you're kind of buying it independently. And once you're owning it, no one else is incentivized to pump your price. On the flip side of it, there are things to be said that it's starting to become like the traditional art world where perhaps it's the artist themselves that is creating the community. So if the artist has 200 one of ones, then there's still an aspect of there's a community around um, those individual pieces based on the artists themselves. And I think we will see over time if artists are able to create unique styles like people that has, for example, that there will be like cults around the artists themselves and any piece that they create will still have a variable pricing, but there will be some aspect of a floor pricing like we had with Picasso, like we had with you know some of the traditional artists where just owning something in their collection is, is valuable. So I'm very curious to see how digital artists start to create moats for themselves where their art cannot be as easily copied or replicated. And I think that is quite sustainable. I, I'm a big believer that one of one's around an artist will will be very significant in the future. Okay, let me play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one of ones, I think, is not a... Um, okay, so, so so one of the favorite words of, of VCs is skeuomorphic, right? Um, wow. especially, in the, in, especially in the in the crypto space. Everyone you know talks about, okay, this is a skeuomorphic idea or whatever. One of ones is kind of like a skeuomorphic idea, right? It's because you know they, they see a, a painting hanging on a wall. Okay, let's replicate this. It, it's not really a natural state. It's, it's, a, it's an artificial. The, the one of one is, a, is an artificial construct, right? And it was constructed by Super Rare, right? They were the kind of the first NFT marketplace that really targeted traditional artists and try to move them into the crypto space. And they created this concept of a, of a, of a one of one. And you know, th- there was a ton of crypto art prior to Super Rare, and much more interesting actually if you <laughs> if you look back in the history of sort of crypto art prior to so 2018 super rare coming out artists were doing all kinds of just crazy shit that that now is mostly forgotten i would say like the one of one is an artificial creation um, that is kind of skeuomorphic and i have my doubts whether this will be kind of the standard of which sort of nft art will will be in in the future because of the problem that you you said, right? <laughs> How do you build community when it is one on one? Is is this just kind of, you know, people getting bragging rights? I think the artists, like the digital artists, that are really able to create something special, will over time, as the amount of people owning NFTs ten x's and hundred x's, they'll just be like, um, you know, kind of superstars. And like we've seen with people, I think there will be other peoples as well. And yeah, people creates combination. He has some one of ones. He has some one of X projects. I can see that happening where there's a combination that might be maybe the equilibrium for an artist. But I, I, I do see like the centerpiece being the artist, the centerpiece being the creator and creators themselves driving the community. I see that as being the future. If the creators are driving the community, then one of ones is not a great vehicle for that, right? Like if you look at the best communities in the NFT space, usually like they're kind of PFP projects, right? And they're sort of big addition sort of kind of kind of works. And I, ha- I have my own opinions on- but How on do you that. feel about like owning something that's like, um, I'll, I'll use people again, just an example. Mm-hmm. There's other mm-hmm. ones, but if you own something where you're the only person that can hang it up in your wall and say like, you know, here, here's my- Here's my one of one. I, I, there's nobody else has the same image versus 
having a one of a thousand politics is bullshit or like one of these other <laughs> a bit, a bit more mass ones. Well, that's the thing. I think I think the psychological phenomenon of I'm the only one that has this and therefore this is kind of what makes me happy to pay it. I think this is a very like boomer kind of mindset, right? Like the whole, <laughs> the whole, the, the whole point of NFTs is that it is not exclusive, right? That that the digital art is, you know, it's it's not locked in some free port somewhere that only you can visit, you know. <laughs> and so it's kind of incongruent that that kind of the the creme de la creme of NFTs is going to be this sort of old schemorphic idea of sort of the one of one that only you own because this is mine, precious kind of thing. And there then, is the benefit though, like with NFTs, everybody can look at it. It's not sure. like it's locked up somewhere. Everybody's looking at the um, the creation, and there is the status aspect of you know everyone's looking at this and and I own it. Um, True, but the status aspect is solved in that sense, solved by CryptoPunks. Where, um, and, and I would say solved even better than a one-on-one. For example, <clears throat> you know, if I own a one-on-one by people, then I own it, of course. But like, how does that give me more status? It doesn't because, if, for example, if I owned an alien CryptoPunk, that gives me more status because it is a one-of-one, but it is a one-of-one in the context of a larger set. So I have actually more status. Like mm-hmm. a CryptoPunk owner has more status within the crypto community than a one-of-one owner does in the people community because everybody, well, not everyone, but there's a lot of one-of-one owners in the people community. And now you've got different one-of-one owners arguing which one-of-one is like more status C, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Right? So yeah, I'm not a, I'm, I'm a one-of-one skeptic basically. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, um, fully convinced on it, but it, I, I guess like, uh, I have a view that we'll, we'll see some interesting developments on, um, how, how those are viewed for specific artists. I mean, I'm just interested in the, in the different thesis that everyone has, right? Because it's, um, NFTs is interesting in that, you know, even more so than crypto, you know, in crypto, a lot of people import their sort of, you know, stock market thesis into mm-hmm. crypto, but in NFTs, like there's the, like, like, who's going to import what? Like no one even knows what to import. I mean, the one thing that I I would suggest people do and that I do myself with NFTs is look at it as real estate. And when you, uh, when I want to invest in real estate, I'm looking for things that are not easy to replicate. So if I'm buying something, even like in the land constrained place, like Singapore, for example, there's so many skyscrapers being built and they have some land that they will keep making skyscrapers out of. So in, in essence, there is some limited capacity to just saying, I'm going to own a flat in Singapore. But if you have something on the beach and it's a beautiful beach, one of the nicest beaches in the world, and you have you know frontline property, that's not something that it's is, is going to lose value because it's very hard to replicate. Even if you want to build things, just having that land so close to something special. So in NFTs, I think using the same mindset of you know what can somebody in one year's time just flood with supply where it's going to be indistinguishable versus something that has some element, some unique trait to it that is not going to be easy to copy and paste. And I think that's one aspect that we can bring from the, from the real world. Okay, let, let's dig into that because that's interesting. When you say some unique aspect, how 
how do you evaluate? So, okay, so let's put aside all the derivative projects for the time being, because, you know, they're derivative, but there are a lot of projects that have something innovative, right? But I would say the majority of those, you know, for whatever reason it is, that innovation never kind of catches on or doesn't translate to that project becoming popular. And, and you can kind of see this, you know, let's say pre-CryptoPunks, right? There, there was a ton of stuff, not, not just CuriCuts, but there was a ton of other sort of crypto art that was done all the way back, you know, from 2011 even. And most of them never really caught on, right? They did something innovative, but for some reason, they never kind of caught on. And, you know, maybe it'll never catch on, but they were kind of innovative at the time. When you look at a project and you see something innovative, how do you try to figure out like, okay, is this thing going to catch on or is it not going to catch on? Or is there just no way to know? I think you can't know because some things, like I said, have flywheel effects. If it, if it, if it gets to a certain point, it'll, it'll start reinforcing itself because the, the status just kind of builds on status. But there are some things that you can do. So one thing that you can't copy paste is the team or, you know, who, who's behind the project, like the, the people are, they're NFTs, you know, the, the people behind the, the projects are, are unique. They're non-fungible. You can't copy paste them. And if the people behind a project are extremely good at executing, like we, we've seen some, uh, some teams are like the board ape team, for example, you're sort of betting on the uniqueness of their execution. Or if they have some technology, I think that we will see this increasingly on the technology side as NFTs become more technologically intertwined. Yeah, you don't know exactly if it's going to catch on like the Aletheia team that's doing, you know, NFTs that are speaking with you are an example where it's kind of early days, but we need to see how much traction those get. If you think there's some unique technology behind the NFT or a unique person behind it, that's something that you can at least follow and bet on initially without, it's not a guarantee of success, but it's, it's without worrying that somebody can copy paste the whole thing. Cool. We could, we've gone for hours, but we're kind of already gone over the hour. Final question, Jordy, before we kind of wrap up, what is your favorite NFT project or artist? So the one aspect of NFTs, I guess we haven't even touched upon that I think sentimentally I'm attached to is the idea of gifting, creating the whole, you know, you, you have this gift market where, where people buy presents for each other for holidays and anniversaries and everything like for birthdays, all this stuff. I, I think it's very untouched in terms of creating NFTs that are designed specifically for showing somebody that you care about them or being able to, you know, uniquely change the NFT for, for that person. So early on, one of the uh, Artbox projects that uh, I liked was the Flowers Artbox project by Arvig. I liked it because it's something that looks very nice aesthetically and it's something that, you know, you can gift um, your partner to create a bond with them and show them that you care about them and you can, you know, choose their, their favorite colors or their favorite design. And they also look great. I, we, you know, we've, we've printed out a lot of these um, in our office and they look awesome. So that's what I'm attached to just because of the, the more like sentimental value. I'm not saying it's going to thousand X or something, but I like the idea of gifting something beautiful to somebody else and creating that connection. And I've seen people, you know, propose with um, flower NFTs and I think that's beautiful. Awesome. Um, Jordi, uh, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure having you here. No, it was a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, Please subscribe and follow. 
and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.